This summer, director Edgar Wright blew up the car heist film genre and rebuilt it literally as a musical action ballet with Baby Driver, a passion project which turned out to be the British filmmaker's highest grossing film to date with $226 million worldwide. Helping Wright marry a stellar soundtrack that includes such songs as the John Spence Blues Explosions Bell Bottoms and Deborah by T-Rex was his sound designer, editor, mixer over seven films, Julian Slater. We have both Wright and Slater in studio on a very special crew call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. The first question I want to ask you is, tell us about um, how Baby Driver was born, because this has been a passion project of yours for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, it, the germ of the idea uh, came to me 21 years ago when I was, um, you know, first, I'd first moved to London and uh, it was really, it's true to say I was inspired by the music because the first song that's in the movie is Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. And when I was 21, I was listening to it on like an audio cassette. I, I, I'm ashamed to say it was a duped audio cassette, but I want to think now that I've bought the album several times over on different formats and used the song in a movie that John Spencer would uh, forgive me for uh, having an illegal copy of the album. He's also in the movie as well. Um, so basically, I would listen to that song over and over again, and I would start to visualize this car chase. So I was 21 at the time. I had actually made my very first no-budget movie, but even though I'd made a movie, I still wouldn't call myself a, a film director. I was, like, broken, living in London, and, like, sort of on the dole. But I, So it wasn't like I was necessarily... I had sort of dreams of making other films, but when I listened to that song, I would just visualize this car chase. And it wasn't like I was sitting there thinking this would be a cool thing for a film. It was more almost like a, an action movie version of synesthesia where when I heard the song, I would imagine these visuals. And I couldn't really listen to the song without thinking about that. So then I, you know, after time, I started to think maybe there's something in that. You know, and uh, the idea of doing a, uh, like a heist film or a film about a getaway driver. I was a big fan of Walter Hill's film, The Driver. Um, but then I started to think because of this song, I thought, oh, maybe the thing, maybe the um, the, the plot element here is that the, the driver is listening to the song. And then it turned into, what if the driver can't drive without the right music playing? Um, so it sort of expanded out of that. And then... I kind of sat on the idea for a very long time, partly because I knew in my heart of hearts it was not a British film. And at that time I was living in London and I hadn't, hadn't really, you know, uh, it was still still years away from my breakthrough with Shaun of the Dead. So I always knew that Baby Driver wasn't like a London movie because London, uh, like for at least 30 years, has not really been somewhere you can have a car chase. <laughs> the one way the traffic system is set up in such a way for maximum congestion and zero bank robberies um bank robberies by car that is lots of bank robberies on mopeds and motorcycles um so anyway over the years um as i was doing my other films or you know prepping for things like Shaun of the dead or working in tv i always had this idea in the back of my mind and in fact in 2002 i did a music video that was like a little dry run for the movie there's a little clip of the music video in the movie. Um, and uh, it was like a dry run for the opening scene, but crucially without the car chase itself, just the pre It's a music video called Blue Song by Mint Royale. Okay, you got two minutes. 
54 seconds from now. And the funny thing is, at the time that I did that, uh, I, I didn't create the idea for the music video. I'd already had the idea for the film. And then I was mad at myself for like sort of burning this idea on this music video. I thought, oh, that was really dumb. That, that could have been a really good movie. And because I couldn't think of anything else, I burned it on this music video, like a 20, 20 grand music video. The irony is, is that that music video, because one of the actors in it kept getting more and more famous, Noel Fielding, who's a, a big British TV star, um, the, the video stuck around. And it stuck around to the point that like years later, cut to like say 2010, by this point, I'd done two movies with Working Title, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Uh, and after the success of Hot Fuzz with Working Title, th th I signed a two-picture deal with them. And, you know, Eric says, you know, what ideas have you got for things? And one of them, as I said, I have an idea for a film called Baby Driver. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's like a crime musical. It's like a, a, like a car chase musical completely driven by music where the lead character is listening to the music. And Eric said, oh, I'd love to see you do, I'd love to see you do that. So that was when I first started sort of prepping the idea. Um, I didn't really start writing it until 2010. But there's a little aside that's a funny one is that in 2010, I did this talk at the LA Film Festival. And J.J. Abrams was moderating. And he said, hey, can we show that video you did with the getaway driver? And I said, yeah. So we showed it on the big screen at the uh, Los Angeles Film Festival. And during, during the clip, J.J. went over to me and said, I think this would be a great movie. And I said, I am way ahead of you. <laughs> I said, I've not only have I started writing it, but I said, I, I basically took the advance for it like three years ago <laughs> and I have to deliver the script. <laughs> so it was something that's been percolating for that long. And I'd say the one other thing that factored into that long gestation period, because the irony for me is that this film has been my biggest hit by a long way. In the US, it outgrossed all of my other movies put together. And so there's a funny irony to that of thinking, oh, wow, I guess I've been sitting on my most successful film for 21 years. However, I don't think I could have made it 20 years ago. I don't think I could have even made it 10 years ago. Spending more time in the States was a big part of that. You know, like um, um, writing the movie, you know, I, I started writing the movie after I had done a, a road trip across the States. I sort of drove from New York to L.A. because I'd spent a lot of time in the States. I was thinking... I feel like if I'm going to do a car movie set in the United States, I've really got to get some tarmac time in. So I drove from New York to L.A. and listened to music specific to each state that I was driving through as I did it. So I did like just a lot of gearing up to do it. And then I guess the other thing is in the other movies, um, Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim, The World's End. Um, I did sequences that were like, you know, sort of leading in this direction. And probably the most famous one being the queen scene in Children of the Dead where the actors, their, their fight with a zombie is all choreographed to Queen. And that was the first time that I had used a stunt coordinator and a dance choreographer together. And it was a very, you know, sort of famous bit from that movie. And even famous enough that when I was pitching this to people sometimes, they'd say, so what's Baby Driver like exactly? I said, well, you know the queen scene in Children of the Dead? It's kind of like that for the whole running time. <laughs> So it's one of those things where it's like been percolating for a very long time. 
I wrote the first draft of the script in 2011. You know, I returned to it in 2014 and started like making sort of serious, um, trying to get the momentum going to make this the next movie. But I, I, I'm, even though it's it's ironic that of the timing of it in terms of it's so long after the first germ of the idea, I couldn't be happier with the way it panned out eventually. So it was amazing. And every single song was in that 2014 screenplay you wrote? I'd say 95% of the songs were in the 2011 screenplay. I think really the only songs that dropped out were not like big ones that were too expensive to clear. It was more like there are occasional dance or hip-hop songs or electronica where they're just basically unclearable songs because they they are using samples that they haven't um, cleared. And so, but I'd say the first draft from 2011, 90% of the songs, 95 are like still in there. So the actors, before before we, uh, as we segue to discussion about the sound, that opening scene, you got, you've got, you know, the three, the three bank robbers crossing the street in a syncopated fashion. They, they open, they open the trunk and they slam down the trunk to the beats in um, the bell bottoms. Are the actors listening to the music yeah. during during production throughout? Yeah. So basically, um, you know, here's the thing: is the majority of movies, um, you know, it's the majority of movies using kind of like sort of source music. Um, they're slapping something on afterwards. You know, not the case with people like Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino, where you know, sort of the, the 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 songs are sort of like you know part of the sort of heart of the script. And this is a very similar thing: is that the songs were all written in. Crucially, we had cleared the songs before we started shooting. So we had an amazing clearance person, Kirsten Lane, who worked like for 18 months before we even started shooting, kind of like sort of, you know, sort of clearing these songs. Even the actors, like all of the the big actors in it, Ansel, Kevin, John, Jamie, Lily James, like sort of, uh, they all received scripts with this special like PDF app that we'd made where the songs were embedded into the script. So you could read the script and like press a button and listen to it. So I think, especially for people like Kevin and, um, I mean, a lot of people, they just sort of like, they got exactly what the tone was. It's like, oh, not only can I read this script, but I can kind of hear it. And this is something we can talk about with Julian in a second. Even that script, I had already started doing sound effects mixes where I'd started mixing in the, um, and mixing in the sound effects into the song. So there was a version of Bell Bottoms, for example, with police sirens and screeching wheels and bank alarms all like um, mixed into the song. So the actors completely got their heads around that. And then also the other big part of it is actually rehearsing it before you even start filming. So with our amazing choreographer, dance choreographer, um, Ryan Heffington, we had rehearsed all of those music pieces with the actors before we started filming. So we'd be, you know, kind of in our production offices with standing around a car and like just rehearsing the choreography on the day the sound department have got 
every possible way that we could listen to the music. If there's no dialogue in the scene and it's a noisy location, just play the music out loud. If we want to record dialogue as well, which we can get into Julian, then they're wearing earwigs. So like Ansel Elgott is already wearing headphones, so his headphones are are linked into a playback thing. But like Bernthal and, uh, you know, Aza Gonzalez and John Hamm in that opening scene will be wearing earwigs. Sometimes if it's like there's no dialogue, it's like, you know, we'll have the, the music and the choreographer doing the five, six, seven, eight, and one. So basically, like, everybody can hear it. You know, in some scenes later, Ansel might be the only person listening to it, if he's the only person listening to it in the scene. Or in the case of, like, the Barry White scene in the diner where there's a tense face-off between John Hamm, Lady James, and Ansel Elgort, they are all listening to Barry White all the way through the scene, even though, in essence... Baby is the only one listening to it. Saying their lines and listening to the music. Yes. Brilliant. Because that's what that's what I was thinking when I was re-watching that scene and how everything was moving and how they were walking in step, uh, Buddy Darling and Griff, I, I was thinking to myself, they have to they have oh, yeah. to be listening to the music. That's the only way you could you could marry this. Yeah. Yeah. But that happened in every single scene. There wasn't a single scene in the movie where we didn't have some form of playback. Now uh What's interesting is on certain films, there's usually a um, the composer is fighting with the sound of I want to get the score out, you know, more over the sound. Here we have the soundtrack is the star. And when I was rewatching it, I was like, okay, it's not like there's a lot of this. The song is the loudest. Correct me if I'm wrong. Part of the scene. Like in that opening sequence, bell bottoms is the loudest part with the da- with the bass and with the percussion, and I mean, and then you you could hear on a second track him patting against him, you know, drumming against the car. Discuss that the whole the whole kind of because usually there's a fight right between sound and, and the music. What's going to win out? Julian can speak more about this, but I'd say the main thing is that you're modulating it all the time because in the opening scene, there's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. So it's then it's like it's a mix between that and the sound effects. And then in other scenes, you know, and that's one of the that was one of the, you know, not a challenge with mixing, but the thing we also always had to kind of like have that balance, because if there's a a music scene with dialogue, then you've got to hear the dialogue as well. So in, in some cases, you're in a situation where it's like the music can completely dominate. And in that opening scene, at least at the start, to really get across the movie, the music is very dominant, but that's not to say I was you, Julian, an enormous amount of sound work involved. <laughs> so yeah. You can so, more to this. so obviously, normally you've got score that's been written specifically for, say, an action sequence. So, and the composer will normally um, deliberately put in ebbs and flows to 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 get around dialogue. On most of the sequences, we didn't have that because these are pre-written pieces of of music um, that kind of just steamroll through it and we want to play the music pretty loud because we're, we're playing it from baby's perspective so you know that was a challenge in of itself so we're constantly doing a thing where we're either subtly taking the music away and letting the sound design take over or doing eq tricks or but we want to always kind of keep the level of that music going the full time and keep the energy going even though we're using subtle tricks to do it and the other thing of course we had steve price as the composer and like you say, there's normally a battle between, well, sometimes there's a battle between, you know, uh, score and sound design. The great thing with working with Steve is, A, Edgar's worked with him 
on his previous movie. I've worked with Steve Steve for, since when he was a um, a music editor, and he's he's a great friend. So you know, every day there would be a line of communication between myself and Steve and his music editor Bradley, and we would be constantly be sharing what Steve was doing and what I was doing, and I would throw things over to Steve for him to incorporate into his score. Uh, like a lot of the uh, the tinnitus sounds, that stuff that uh, either Steve has given to me or I've given to Steve, and Steve has then scored his stuff to be in the same pitch as what we're doing. Or so it's a, it was a constant kind of throwing the ball between the two departments, if you like. And the interesting thing about Steve Price is that, like, ten years ago, before Steve Price was a a composer and b an Oscar-winning composer, yeah, he was somebody that like worked on the the very first bit of prep for the movie. Because when I was first sitting down to kind of write it, I had about ten other songs earmarked, and like there were you know ten of the big set pieces. I knew what the songs were, but I was like, mm, I really want some help sort of breaking these songs down so I can incorporate some of the musical language into the script. And uh, somebody, I think it was our music supervisor Nick Angel, somebody suggested Steve Price. Oh, there's this guy Steve Price who's a brilliant music editor. You should meet him. So I met Steve. He was great, and then he basically helped me break down the songs. So this was Steve Price, like when he was a music editor, um, was there right at the start. Now, since then, uh, he he arranged the uh, Nigel Godridge's score on Scott Pilgrim. He then I executive produced the first film he did part of the score for, which was Attack the Block. His next film after that was Gravity, which he wins the Oscar for. So, and then I worked with him twice since on The World's End. And then, and then on this one, like Baby Driver only really has about 25 minutes of score, what would you say? Minutes? There's actually more. I think there's n- nearly 40 minutes. Okay, so there's quite a lot, but it's, but it's a lot more subtle work. You know, it's great stuff, but it's, it's much more subtle. Um, and he does a thing which not a lot of composers do because Steve is an amazing composer, but he doesn't have the ego of some other composers in terms of like, because he'd been intimate with the production, uh, the pre-production of the movie and even the songs of the first draft of the script, you know, he knew that A, like what he's doing is in complement to the songs. And B also, well, the first thing is, is I, I called him and I said, I know you're like a big time composer now, <laughs> but do you still want to do Baby Driver? Because we still need some score. And he goes, oh, I mean, I'd love to. I said, I wouldn't want anybody else to do it. So a great thing that he does, which is then part of the mix, which you can talk a bit more about, is that like sometimes Steve's score is complementing the songs. So there are many moments in there where there is like score happening at the same time the song is playing. So they're sort of like essentially in tandem as two separate elements, but um, his score is complementing the song. Now, not a lot of composers would do that because, you know, composers want to sort of like, they want their music to be heard full blast. But, and Steve does some amazing things in the movie as well, is that we talked about doing transitions. If there is a piece of score, sometimes it's kind of like starting in the same key as the outgoing song. So you might have a thing where... A song is just finished, and he's doing a bit of score, and then like his score ends in the same key as the Beach Boys, which is the next song up. So that's kind of an extraordinary thing, which you can only really do when A, you have all the songs worked out before, and B, you have a composer that wants to actually... Um, you know, be sympathetic to what's already in there, which totally, is like... Yeah. And, it, and that's very unusual. So in the beginning, we hear score, because we hear, the t- we hear his... Um, 
we hear the high pitch sound over the Sony logo. That's, yeah, that, that that's a great example of just a multitude of things all working in tandem. You've got the Sony logo that's been deliberately pitched to then work to go into the tinnitus that also is working with Steve's strings that then goes into the brake squeal of the WRX pulling up that then hands off onto the bell-bottoms cue. Bell Bottoms has strings in it as well. So you've got, yeah, exactly. You have like sort of score and sound and the song all working in tandem. Amazing. So like people who don't know that song might think that, oh, that's the song. But that's just a combination of like Julian's work, Steve Price's work, and also John Spencer Blues Explosion. Yeah. <laughs> all working in perfect harmony. <laughs> so before before you came, I was, I was talking with Julian. Uh, once uh, a few years ago, I went up to the Dolby Labs in San Francisco. And there's a guy there by the name of Ian Allen, who's one of their Oscar-winning tech guys who gives a speech called The Egg Show. And he shows how sound design, he shows sound design as art. Something where like a lay moviegoer, if they're watching a scene, may not recognize that the sound design is being used in, art in an artistic way. And what one of the, the, the key scenes that he shows in his speech is in Risky Business, when the cops come, when, when Tom Cruise is all of a sudden caught by the cops with a girl in bed, uh, there's this kind of dream sequence. And the, the cop car lights are synced to the, uh, the Tangerine Dream score. Mm. And I, in watching it again, in watching Baby Driver again, I'm like, hmm, I'm wondering there's a little bit of that in there. And I notice during the shootout scene with uh, Paul Williams, with Jamie, Jamie Foxx and 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 baby and 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 John Hamm and everything that scene where they go to get the guns the tequila the gunshots are are part of the beats yeah are mixed in with the beats throughout um, I mean throughout the movie yes. throughout, yeah throughout, throughout the, the movie yeah, yeah. That, with yeah. tequila yeah well that no that happens three times it happens in the tequila scene it also happens in Hocus Pocus and it also happens in the final uh, shootout in Brighton Rock and so here's the thing most action movies if you're doing an action scene you're going to shoot like so maybe like five or ten times what you need but with this we so the tequila is a good example because that is a song and it's not the original version of tequila it's a it's a cover version by the button down brass and the reason that i had earmarked that as a song is that that has like a solo with two drummers like a two drummers doing like a drum off and I heard that song thinking, this would make a great gunfight. So then in the design of that sequence, even even just in sound, before we'd even brought a stunt team on and before we'd even done storyboards for it, is that you could work out where the sort of like the sort of the gunshots would go with the music. Then, like in designing that, we actually sort of through storyboards and then with working with the stunt team, we were actually earmarking like this part is like bats. This part is Buddy. This part is like the other guys. And so you actually sort of like, so so basically when we kind of walk onto set to shoot that scene, we know like how many people are shooting, which whose part is which, and then and then 
finally, it's about getting that mix right um, later so that you can hear the guns and the drums. So it's um, it's something where it's like that's not just a um, that's not just like a happy accident. That's like sort of meticulously planned to the millisecond. And and also it happens in the hocus pocus scene with John Hamm is firing in time with the music, and also it happens in the final scene as well. So what was the most challenging scene for you to marry visual and sound to? I mean, what's I mean that that might be an un, it, that might. It's it might have been every single scene. I mean, it kind of was. Yeah, it kind of was. I mean, it, uh, it. There's a lot that you see that is syncopated. I, I, I'm, the, the movie works on so many levels. Like from my perspective, for what I'm trying to help Edgar tell his story with, there's the syncopation which happens throughout the movie. That is the stuff that also you see that's on screen, the stuff that you see visually. But then there's also a lot of stuff that happens, you know, off screen. There's, you know, trains going past or sirens or the car squeaks or the the wheel squeaks and the and the, there's just a whole load of stuff that's happening that's syncopated to the music. Uh, then there's also the thing with the tinnitus and 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 playing scenes where because essentially what we've done is whenever baby's not listening to music, you know we hear his tinnitus and we want the audience to feel what baby's feeling um, and, and it's a delicate balance between you know playing that so that it doesn't alienate the audience so it makes them you know empathise with what baby's problem is. So and likewise, things like where he takes out the hearing, uh, the the earbuds on the right hand side of his uh, his right hand earring uh, earbud, will drop the music out. So it's only playing for a whole scene on the left hand side. So it, the thing is to try and you know help you see things through baby's perspective, to always kind of throughout the movie let the sound, you know, uh, help with the story, never to never to detract, detract from it. And, and also because. It's an experiential movie in that Baby is in every single scene. So, in theory, the movie is almost entirely told through his eyes and his ears. And you were also mentioning that um, you never wanted to um, have it be more pronounced than it should be so that the moviegoer is aware that the sound... Like, it was... this. You were mentioning the sound should be a subtle character. It shouldn't be over... Yeah, I mean, all all of you know, I've been lucky enough to work with Edgar on on all his movies, and they they are all extremely unique from a sound perspective. And I, you know, every time I work with Edgar, I, I it's no coincidence that I I some of my best work is done because he's the kind of director who thinks about sound, not just with this movie, but with all all the movies he's done. You know, he thinks about sound from the very first moment that I suspect he's writing the script. You know, so it's my job to come on board and help Edgar realize his vision for what it is that he's thinking. You know, Edgar's, you know, a, 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 a master in all the arts. You know, it's not just the the, the sound, but it's the the picture and the design and the writing and the and the directing. But from my perspective, my job is to to come on board and and help Edgar uh, tell his story and to. The sound to be a unique, amazing experience for the audience member, but I, it should never dis- detract from what Edgar is trying to do. You know, likewise for you know, it, as an example of that is, you talk about the guns in Tequila. You know, th- there was a continual process of trying different guns that worked musically to the beat of the drum, not just how where they, not just the tempo and the synchronization of them, but the actual sound of them. And so you want those guns to sound musical to work with the Tequila track. 
um, but they also need to sound uh, cinematically correct. So you, there's a constant thing of trying different elements and seeing if they work and going with them if they do and then pulling them out and replacing them if they don't. And that, that was throughout the whole movie. Did you guys discover anything in post or was everything pre-planned? You knew that there was going to be, you know, the bang of the the bang of the trunk and the the he's going to drum on the side of the car. Did was everything pre-planned or were there moments where you discovered uh, certain things in post where like, oh, it would be great if we made accentuated this a bit more. I think a lot of it was there was a lot of pre-planning on it in terms of like the um, the choreography of it and the sort of the design and then I think things that we did that where we were just thinking ahead um, that we did whilst we were there is that um, you know there's little things in there like in the opening coffee run sequence is that people are talking on the street now those people talking on the street we recorded them for like several minutes. And they could hear the music as well. So we got people who could sort of do bits of dialogue where they're sort of talking, but they're also sort of talking with Harlem Shuffle playing in their ear. So those actors can kind of like then get in sync. So if you listen to that sequence with the coffee run, you hear little whispers of other conversations. And those people are like speaking in time. And then also we're moving around parts to make it more in time. example of things where like it's not written into the script it's not done in pre-planning but it's something where you get the idea when you're on the set is in Atlanta it's like a major train hub and if anything the one thing that holds up filming is the sound of trains but then it's like I would say to the sound guy saying run on some of these trains because it's actually like you know the film has a growing sort of um, sense of dread it gets more and more ominous as the film goes on because you know, as a sort of a fan of crime cinema or even just in terms of the work the baby's doing, that something bad, something really bad is going to happen. Things are getting worse by each kind of like sort of um, heist movie, a uh, heist scene rather. So sort of like the first heist goes off like a, like, like, um, like a dream. The second one is like sort of there's lots of trouble. The third one is a disaster and, you know, fatal for people. Um and so one of those things is like sort of like trains is a good way of doing like rolling thunderclaps because uh, trains can provide like sort of, um, um, you know, uh, emphasis. So we're always looking and we've done this on all of our films. We're always looking for diegetic sounds that are in that landscape that you could use as a term of expression. And so if you're making a horror film, you might have like a rolling thunderclap. In this movie, there's like trains going past all the time as a way of kind of like setting up that there's some kind of like sort of rolling, um, you know, ominous dread in the distance. So that was one of the things. What are the other things in that ilk that we we recorded a lot of? Well, uh, I was just going to go back to your point about the different car chases. That's, an, you know, that's an example. The, the first car chase at the very beginning of the movie is the perfect getaway, correct? Yep. It's like, you know, everything goes just right. So the sound design on that is... The car passes have animal wishes and it's all kind of very cinematic and everything. The, the We've pitched things to work beautifully with the music and stuff and every car skid is like a really cool kind of... Uh, that works with the, with the score. Then the next one, 
where things start to go awry, we've kind of started detuning stuff and uh, things don't work so perfectly. So we're trying to, again, we're, we're setting up the sound to work for what that particular scene is. And the next one where things don't go so well, the sounds are slightly different, a bit more discordant and not quite so um, you know, polished in many respects. So it's a, it's a, it's a constant. Edgar, more than any other director, hands me a framework of and he knows exactly what he's aiming for and he hands me this kind of framework that then I kind of take and 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 add you know I try and add my bit to it but it's always within what it is that Edgar's trying to achieve now are most directors when it comes to sound do they kind of take a back seat and say okay you do your thing I trust you I'm just going to stay back here versus you 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 had Edgar you had a you had a game plan you had a very specific game plan of what you wanted to punctuate yeah, and some of that as well is just on a practical level. Is like I've never, you know, like most of the movies I've ever made. There's, you know, you always like sort of like have slightly less days than you need. So my 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 um, mo always is to go in with a plan. Is like I never ever go on the set and saying, okay, so how's this gonna work? It's like you go in with a plan because that's the only way to. We shot the movie in fifty nine days, which um, given how much action in the movie is, is you know that's. That's that's not many days for that amount of action, and the only way to get through it is to plan every inch of it. That's not to say that other great creative solutions don't come up, or something sort of that you hadn't sort of uh, necessarily anticipated, kind of like works better or works worse than you thought. But you always go in with a plan. I mean, you know, to sort of to show how meticulous it was. A good example. Another good example is in the Harlem Shuffle coffee sequence. Is like. We had done like a rough like mix, um, you know, um, and and this is obviously something that you know we hugely embellished with Julian. But there's this DJ that I work with in the UK called Ozzy Misu who helped me do these little mixes of stuff. This is the same thing that was on the script. So as an example, there was this ATM sound in there at one point, and it was just like this because he's walking through the streets, you hear this ATM sound. Now I never moved where that was on the tracks, and when we were designing that Steadicam shot with my production designer, we would walk the shot with the song playing, and when that beeping thing of beep 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 beep, I said, "Oh, we've got to put an ATM right Just here." Like <laughs> yeah, you do. Real. Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember they put it, they put it up, and then and for some reason it ended up being like sort of 15 feet like left of where it should be. And we, we literally ran it with Ansel where we ran this song and Ansel walking it through. And I would say to Marcus Productions, I said, oh, the, the ATM needs to be here because that's where it lands on the track. Now, in theory, I could have moved the sound, but I'd got so used to where some things were. And this is the thing that became hugely sort of in, embellished. But, it, it, you know, it's great to sort of like the nice thing about doing a film like this is that like there's a lot of detail going in. And then there's a lot of things that like you learn through the um, the shooting of it, like the train sounds. And there's a lot of things that then we're adding to the the actual, like you said, the sort of the dramatic movements in the film with how the sounds are mixed later. Do you have a favorite scene? I think that uh, I wouldn't say to keep. I, I wouldn't say a favorite scene, but I think as a as a as a as a, a statement of the whole thing with sound design and musical uh, aspects working together, the tequila scene is a, is a pretty much kind of you can hang your coat on that and say there you go, that's 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 it working perfectly. 
but there, I mean, it's throughout the movie, and even the the the, the that aspect of it is 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 happening. You know, there's a scene with in the um, quieter scenes as well. In the quieter scene, I was just thinking outside the restaurant back in Alia, There's yeah. there's um, Doc is talking to to Baby, and there's a there's a train that's going over some um, some points in the background, and that's happening in tempo with the track that's playing outside the restaurant. Good meal, baby. That foie gras terrain is something, huh? Yeah. You don't look happy to see me. Why? I said we were straight, but did you think we were done? That that was it? Uh, I guess I did. So it's 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 laced throughout the movie. And even the track that's playing outside the restaurant, because some of those restaurants they have the music that's playing in the restaurant, and then they also have that little kind of like PA that's uh, by the valet that's still playing it. So we thought, oh, because it's the PA outside, the song's continuing. But usually those things we made that sound more echoey, so it becomes immediately sinister when the song is playing in the restaurant where Lily James and Ansel are having a date. It's lush and romantic and it sounds really full and there's the sounds of diners and people drinking and stuff. But then in the valet, when you're on this other speaker, it's a bit more ghostly and suddenly you make a lot of like a, a sexy romantic song sound somewhat sinister. I mean, those are the things I'd say that in terms of like, you know, if I, you, you know, in terms of a, a scene with sound design, I would, I would say the Hocus Pocus by Focus sequence, which is like, the foot chase and the the shootout in the kind of the parking lot. There's so much happening in that scene, and you know, not just with the sound effects and the music, but also with like dialogue stuff that we recorded on the thing, yeah. and also loop group dialogue. There's lots of great stuff in there that's also in time with the music, and then even in quieter scenes without car chases or gunfights, like you know, like the diner scenes, which are more dreamy, or the later diner scene with Barry White, where there's you know, you have like the sort of you know, also the, the encroaching, you start to counterscore. You have this lush kind of like romantic, like sort of, um, you know, R&B song. But then there's elements which are making it more ominous. Like there's, by this point, there's a manhunt for these America's Most Wanted. Baby and Buddy at this point are like on the run and like they have been involved in like sort of, um, you know, serious interactions with the law, which makes them like sort of like, you know, sort of like most wanted. So then it's like, even though you don't see them all the time, there's like helicopters for the last third of the movie because a manhunt is on. Sometimes you see those helicopters, sometimes you see the lights, and sometimes you just hear them. But it's something that, you know, in a situation like that, that's like another element of like the sort of like, you sort of can keep kind of adding this like sort of um, audio tension on top. Now, you you have taken the, the car heist genre and you've risen it to this amazing new sublime level. It's a ballet now. You've created a, you know, everyone's been writing this all summer. You have created a ballet between song and sound, um, you know, integrated within this genre. Are you planning uh, to do that again, but with another genre where you're also, um, you know, um, you know, you're also playing with song and sound or is this an anomaly? Is this something... No, it's something I would like to do again in a different form. I mean, you know, regardless of there being some talk of a sequel, it is something that I'd like to do. I like I like playing with music, and I like the idea of, like, whether it would be an actual score or using stuff with, like, songs. I like that idea and, like, sort of, like, you know, if you see my other movies, they're not 
exactly like baby but there's a lot of elements that are leaning towards and you know sometimes friends or colleagues saying when are you just going to do a musical <laughs> and i said that's a very good question i mean if the right one came up i would certainly be game but i like the idea of i love the idea of playing with sound and i love the idea of um i mean a big big part of it for us is also sort of to make it like a fully cinematic experience is that sort of you know um it's not just about the visuals it's also about the audience audio experience of being in you know so we you know we had a screening at like uh sam goldwyn theater on tuesday which we were both very excited about because it's like oh that place has got the best like sound yeah. specs it's like this is going to be like faultless like presentation of the sound so that's exciting to us so i would say i would love to do more in that realm and there are some ideas that i have that are even you know going in that direction or even doing something even further in that direction you know Thank you for listening to the Crew Call Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe for this and all other Deadline podcasts in the Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.